This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. All right, then. So off to the next one. Welcome back to the Naked Bible Podcast. In the last podcast episode, I noted the confusion that can be created in the minds of readers of the Belgic Confession. Confusion over the gospel due to statements that appear to connect baptism with salvation in some way. This time, as we continue talking about baptism, we'll look at the Heidelberg Catechism. It's important to keep in mind that the reason I'm doing this is that I've had lay people read these documents and emerge very confused. They know the gospel going in and are left wondering why in the world the creeds say what they do coming out. They read clearly on the gospel in one part, and then they say things about baptism that sound like they violate the gospel. The poor wording is a very real source of confusion for people who aren't theological experts. And frankly, the experts are so married to the creeds via denominationalism that they're left to defend the confused wording poorly in many cases. This is not simply denominationalism that is driving uh, the defense of these creeds. Uh, It's actually the scriptures, the clear teachings of the scriptures, uh, where uh, Peter says baptism also now saves you, as an example. Uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2 at the end of uh, his Pentecost sermon tells the people to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And so what he's done here, he's confused. It's not that the creeds are confused. He is confused, and he doesn't, he refuses to, he, he has a, what would you say, an a priori bent against baptism and the sacrament of the altar as doing and being anything. And I can't help to wonder, uh, I have no way of, of actually knowing, but when he talks about these people that he encounters who bring these creeds and confessions to him, I can't help but wonder if he's not the one already coaching them to see these supposed, air quotes, inconsistencies. I just can't imagine somebody would read them and come to the same conclusions that that he is. Certainly not. I, I can't imagine that. Now, of course, it's important to note that we disagree with these confessions uh, on some level, but not entirely. Uh, we agree with them insofar as they say that baptism does something for believers uh, as a way of incorporating them into Christ. Let's look at the catechism now. It's structured in the form of questions. Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. How are thou righteous before God? Answer, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that, Though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding, God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. So without hearing his comment just yet, I would say that you and I fully embrace what is written there in question and answer number 60. Yes, it's a very nice explanation of the subjective righteousness that we have before God. Now that's a pretty succinct articulation of the biblical gospel. There's no confusion there. So we move on to question 61. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Answer. Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Moving to question 65, question, Since then we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only, whence does this faith proceed? Answer, From the Holy Ghost, who works faith in our hearts, 
by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments, unquote. Again, these are very good answers to these questions. Generally speaking, they are very good. I would say uh, the one last question, 65, that he went over, which is, since we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only, whence does this faith proceed? And he says, the answer here from the Heidelberg Catechism is, from the Holy Ghost who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. Uh, a Lutheran would just quibble with those words by saying that actually the, the sacraments themselves don't just confirm uh, faith, but they actually are preaching of the gospel. But as we've talked about before, this is a clear evidence that the designers, the architects, the divines who made this document, they believe that God uses means. Clearly they do. And he has God-ordained means, and thus, you know, as we all know, there are counterfeit means that either A, the old Adam runs to, or false belief, error, uh, allows us to get involved in these things. Like our sin is to walk away from the God-ordained means to something else. It'll be interesting to see where he goes with this, particularly on that front. Is he going to say that the answer in 65 is good up to this point? Uh, that this faith proceeds from the Holy Ghost who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel, and then try to put a full stop there? Or does he even reject the preaching of the gospel? I, I can't imagine that. We'll see. Now, again, there's a lot of, of clarity in there, but you have to wonder here what it means that the Holy Ghost confirms the faith he gives by the sacraments. Do infants exercise faith when they're baptized? It's hard for me to believe the Catechism would presume that. Reformed theology will, of course, seek to honor the connection between circumcision and baptism. But there's no scriptural affirmation that Abraham's children believed when they were circumcised, or anyone's children believed when circumcised when they're eight days old. So this is a, a subterfuge that he's presenting us with. It's as if uh, my analogy here would be there is no evidence uh, that everybody who hears the gospel believes the gospel in the Bible, right? In fact, Isaiah says they have not all believed, and that's in Romans chapter 10. But just because the preaching of the gospel is met with unbelief doesn't mean that it's not a means by which God bestows faith. Well, what he's done here is he's said that just because uh, it might be the case that some people don't believe who have been baptized, therefore, that negates the efficacy of all baptism. That's complete junk. It's a poor argument. If one retreats to the idea that parents can believe for the infant, this fails in two respects. One, that it isn't confirmed in the Catechism's statements about salvation by faith. Two, it's not affirmed anywhere in the Bible either. The confusion mounts when we look at what the Catechism says about the sacrament of baptism specifically. We start with Heidelberg Catechism question 66 in that regard. Question, what are the sacraments? Answer, the sacraments are holy visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof, he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely, that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Unquote. Help me with this, Pastor Russ, because what I am listening to Mike read and reading here myself this is extremely clear. Again, as you have pointed out to answer number 65 about confirming the faith, yeah, we would take issue with that. And, and even here in the answer for 66, I'm a little bothered by the fact that there's no mention here of holiness, that yes, the sacrament offers the forgiveness of sins, but I guess my point is the sacrament does more than just what is relayed here. In 66, you're correct. Yes, right. Yeah. But I don't walk away from this and say that it's confusing like he is. Right, like it's a contradiction. But of course, go back. I mean, his, his fundamental premise is that the gospel is faith in Christ apart from any works. 
And what he is doing is he has simply assumed that receiving the sacrament of the altar or receiving baptism is a work done by the person to whom this is occurring, right? That's, that's a fundamental error. We don't ever see this in the scriptures. Uh, it's always passive. When, you, when you're baptized, it's a passive verb. Receiving is something done to you. So this guy's confused about what's going on in both of those things. In his own confusion, he's turning around and saying then that the document itself is confusing. Right. Isn't that interesting? It's, but it's confusing <laughs> only if you come to it with the preconception that he's got. And he's not allowing the document to sort of speak for itself and explain itself on its own terms. Just like he doesn't let Scripture do it. It's interesting wording here and very common wording in sacramental theology. Sacraments are, quote, signs and seals, unquote. I get the sign part. The sacrament is like a picture or analogy of some greater spiritual reality or point. But then we have problems. What does it mean that the sacrament declares and seals to us the promise of the gospel, the remission of sin, life eternal, for the sake of the sacrifice of Christ. What does that mean? Is this wording saying that all who are baptized, especially as infants, have the remission of sins sealed to them? That's exactly what this is saying, is that baptism does bestow the remission of sins. Now, that remission of sins can be received. So that's the delivery mechanism. It can be received on the human side, only through faith created in the heart by God. Well, how does God create faith in the heart? He makes a promise. He delivers that promise in baptism. It comes to you as the promise of the remission of sins, and that promise God intends to create faith in the heart. So faith can be created in a baby? Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is so wild to me how he is reading the documents. The documents are saying one thing, He's saying, no, they, they obviously can't mean that. He's asking the bold-faced questions, is this really true? It is really true. You know, back to his argument about parents believing on behalf of their children. He's absolutely right there. I mean, I cannot believe for my daughter. I couldn't believe for her when she was an infant, and I can't believe for her today. The faith that she has that clings to Christ must be her own. In other words, given to her by God. Good point. But let's make clear that when parents bring their children to be baptized uh, and confess the faith into which the child is going to be baptized uh, as their own belief, they are coming uh, before the Lord just like the friends of the paralyzed man brought the paralyzed man before the Lord. They came in their own faith that Jesus could do something for the paralyzed man. And he spoke a word, and that's exactly what happened. This is what happens in baptism as well. We come in our own faith, trusting in the Lord's promises that he can deliver what he says through the sacrament, and then he does it. Well, and you're not making this up. I mean, the text even says, if I'm not mistaken, Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends of the paralytic. Yes, but they didn't believe on his behalf, but their faith motivated them to bring him before Jesus. There is a... Um, a real fine skill set that one has to have because you're making distinctions. And these distinctions, they can seem so, so minuscule. But the problem with these distinctions, these minuscule distinctions is they have huge ramifications as they move out, so to speak. So it's, it's kind of like two parallel lines, right? Uh, if you adjust one parallel line by one degree, for the first few inches, it might not even look like they are a different line. But you play that out uh, over a thousand miles, and they're going to be miles and miles apart. Well, this is kind of the, the hard work. It's like, um, I don't know, it's like you and I are house inspectors. And, and here's this house. The, the, the owner wants to sell it. And so we go in, and it's not one of these things where we're looking to see if there's a living room and a kitchen. We have to 
put on our booties and put the light on our helmet and go up under the crawl space and see if there's rotting wood and see if there's anything that's that's leaking. We've got to do a full inspection. We've got to get up in the attic where it's really hot. And wow, what a pain. But we've got to crawl around here and touch everything and see everything because... This stuff matters. Right, and otherwise it's an unsafe house. If it's rotting uh, or has termites, the wall's going to fall in on you. And that's exactly uh, what happens in theology. That's a really good analogy. Sure sounds like it. I have to wonder how that is the case, given the clear articulation of the gospel that preceded this section in the Heidelberg Catechism. Those in Reformed circles, it seems to me, can pretty easily keep the gospel and baptism separate when talking about signs or analogies, but when you use words like sealing, it suggests something is accomplished and guaranteed through baptism, and that is theologically dangerous. Again, think back to earlier podcast episodes we've already had about my emphasis on if you say something about baptism, you ought to be able to say it about circumcision as well, and vice versa. If they're connected, the language needs to be consistent, and the theology needs to be consistent. We do assert the same exact thing about circumcision, that the faith that is bestowed in baptism, in the once-for-all sacrifice uh, of Christ for the sins of the world on the cross of Calvary in history, was sealed and given to the circumcised in ancient Israel. That's how God plopped it in their lap. And this is how he does it today. I, I don't get what the issue is with this guy. He is elevating his reason above the revelation. The revelation, not only in the scriptures, and clearly as it's explained in these documents, it is sticking with reason being where it's supposed to be in its ministerial use. He is elevating in a magisterial way his reason to say, clearly it can't say that. Even when it says that. Unbelievable. Let's go on to question 67. Question. Are both word and sacraments then ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. This is the answer. For the Holy Ghost teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ, which he offered for us on the cross, unquote. Now, this wording is a little better, but it still raises questions. The sacraments, quote unquote, direct our faith to Christ. Well, what does that mean? Is it a pointer? As in, oh, I see, that's what I'm supposed to believe to have eternal life. Or is it some sort of spiritual kickstart to move us toward the gospel? If it does that, why does it fail when people don't believe or when they apostatize? They give up their faith. Number one, I agree with him that this there is some confusion in the Reformed confessions about what actually happens in baptism, right? You and I, uh, as Lutherans, reading the scriptures, uh, would say that God, through baptism and through the sacrament of the altar, actually puts the forgiveness of sins, applies it to the person. That creates faith. Again, th this is a canard. He is saying that because sometimes people don't believe, therefore, the thing is without effect whatsoever. It's bogus. Then he has to say that the preaching of the gospel is without effect. I'm reminded of the ten virgins. The ten virgins, five run out of oil, and the bridegroom comes, and they don't share, and they go with the bridegroom, and he closes the door. The five come back later after going, we assume, to get more oil, and they say, let us in, and he says, I never knew you. All ten of those virgins, they were the church. All of them. It wasn't like you had the believers and the unbelievers. They were all a part of the church. So that means that they had had the gospel preached to them. Correct. They had been baptized. Yes. They had received the sacrament of the altar. Right. 
but they let the oil run out of their lamps because other things were more important or they walked away from the faith. I mean, we would, you know, say these things. They let their faith dry up. The, the oil ran out. God has ordained, as these documents say, God has ordained these means, and they thought little of them. Precisely. How can the Holy Spirit keep you in the one true faith your entire life when you jettison the means that he's ordained to get you there? And that's exactly what he's doing here, you're saying. Absolutely. Again, he, he has no proper distinction between salvation won and salvation distributed. Uh, he doesn't get that. He doesn't get that what God procured on the cross needs some way to get to us. He thinks that just by having faith, both of those are attained. Salvation won, salvation delivered. All you've got to do is have faith or believe. Right. Because to think otherwise, that makes it a work, and there can't be works because you're only say this is that whole pitting the sacraments up against Justification by faith. That's correct. But it fails to answer the question, how the goods get from the cross to the believer, that he doesn't reckon with at all. No, but what I'm shocked at is that the documents actually do. Correct. The documents are, you know, again, marred, but they are on to the idea that God distributes salvation through word and sacrament. Why do we have such a hard time with that? Why? It's not just the American evangelical. It might just be the American. It might just be the human. I don't know. We want the goods. I'm sure that there are people in the world who say, I don't want anything that God has to offer. Sure. Okay. Granted, I'm not talking about them. But if you came to anybody and said, would you like the gifts that God has for you? And they say yes, then here's the means, here's the mechanism, here's the delivery system. However you want to say it, this is how it gets to you. Why wouldn't someone say, okay, I'll be first in line? Is this the stiff-necked people that, that God is always complaining against with Israel? The, they're a stiff-necked people. I mean, are we, are we just like that? I've told you. I've told you. I've told you. Yeah. I don't know. Is it, is it something in the American DNA, the self-made man notion or something like that? I, I know some evangelical friends that I have who lay a lot of stock in the action of coming to faith and, and treat it, frankly— as a virtue, unlike this catechism, which I think does a wonderful job of saying, Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Answer, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but only because of the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And we would say the exact same thing in, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. Right. And faith is an incomplete, I mean, this is really important. Faith is an incomplete fulfilling of the first commandment. In other words, if you say, oh, through faith, I fulfill the first commandment. Okay, fine, to some degree, but it's not enough for God, right? It's not enough to be uh, worthy and counted righteous on your own merits. It's because of what it clings to. It clings to Christ. Is he one of these guys who assigns some virtue to the having of faith? some worthiness to the having of faith. Sure. To me, this fits in very nicely in the American psyche to the self-made man, right? Why is uh, Bill Gates so successful? Well, he rolled up his sleeves and worked really hard. Self-made man. Why uh, am I going to heaven? Well, because I had enough virtue to make a decision for Christ, and so God's going to, at the pearly gates, going to say, oh, you, you're a virtuous guy, you come on in. I think that's what's animating this, hmm. why, why, why Americans are so resistant to the idea that God uses something to bring his gifts to you. And that something, is it just so mundane? I mean, it's not like snake handling. Like, I, think about that. Like, if you, if you got the goods by picking up snakes, like, wow, that's... I mean, that's kind of scary. Right, or bungee jumping off of a thousand-foot bridge right, or something. right. Or even, you know, like a whirling dervish where you get all worked up by spinning and spinning and spinning or speaking in some what appears to be ecstatic language. And all this is is water, some styrofoamy tasting hosts, <laughs> right. and bad Mogan David wine. Right, right. Or as I heard a guy say, I have a harder time believing that that's bread <laughs> than it is the body of Christ. That's a nice way of saying what good is it 
if it has no guarantee? And if it doesn't do that, why not be clearer in what is written? In other words, why not be more clear in what it does do? This guy wants these things to be magic or something like this, but let me just come up with an analogy that I think will explain this very well. Baptism is like uh, opening up your stocking on Christmas morning and finding a $50 gift certificate to the car wash in it. If you drive to the car wash with that gift certificate and hand it to the people, are you guaranteed to get a car wash for $50, a sure. very fancy one? Sure you are, right? But if you take that and you throw it in your sock drawer and forget about it, does the guarantee go away? No. No, it's just that you're not making use of it. His analogies, his um, his thinking is just very muddled on this. It's He's not allowing his thinking to be conformed to the scriptural model. He's coming at it with some other uh, preconception. Basically, what he's saying is this isn't mechanical. Therefore, it's obviously not true. And it's clear that he's come to these texts with this preconceived idea and notion, so much so that he's saying, why can't these things be reworded to match what I've come to the text with? Right, right, exactly. Whereas these documents actually do a very nice job, faulty in some ways, of reflecting what the text actually says. It is so clear that he is denying these scriptural truths simply based on the fact that he can't believe what God says about the delivery mechanism. Do you think, I, I'm just trying to think of what the problem is here again, you know, and, and what you got onto earlier. Do you think that this is rooted in like scientific empiricism? What he's saying is that there's no guaranteed outcome. I can observe this. This is what he's saying. I can observe that there's no guaranteed outcome. But isn't that based upon a scientific, empiricistic worldview where, you know, if you mix sodium with NaCl, right, sodium chloride, whatever that is that you mix together to make those two, you always get sodium chloride. You know that. That's the way it works. It's guaranteed. Or if you punch them in the eye, what's going to happen? They're going to get a black eye. You know that's going to happen. The scriptures aren't talking about the effectiveness of baptism in quite that way, or, or at least they're not saying that the result is what he thinks it must be. What the scriptures say is that baptism bestows the forgiveness of sins. It lays it in the possession of somebody. That laying it in the possession of somebody has the intention of creating faith. Sometimes, because of the hardness of the heart of the person, the faith is not created. But even if that is the case, if he is coming at it from that sort of bent, as you're talking about, then I would see it as him not just stopping with the delivery mechanism. And what I mean by that is virgins don't have babies. Dead men don't rise from the grave. Uh, water doesn't turn into wine. Men don't walk on water. People Righteousness doesn't get imputed. Right. So my point is, is that if he's coming at it from that perspective that you're that you're talking about, and I have no idea, but if he is, then where does that stop? It can't. It goes all the way to the existence of God himself. On to question 71 in the Catechism. Question. Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? Answer. In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, quote, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 28, 19. And also, another verse, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark sixteen sixteen. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism, quote-unquote, the washing of regenerations and the washing away of sins, Titus 3.5, Acts 22.16, unquote. And these are all go-to texts for the Lutheran in explaining what baptism does. Right, because they are so clear. It tells you exactly what does baptism do? It saves you. 
what does baptism do? It makes you a disciple of Jesus. What does baptism do? It uh, pours out the Holy Spirit, uh, gives you the washing of new birth, and it uh, washes away all of your sins. These and, are clear. And what you've said before is it does not matter about the amount of water. That's not where the emphasis is laid. The emphasis is laid upon the Word of God attached to the water, regardless of how much water is available. Correct. So let's see what he has to say. Now we have some problems. The Titus 3.5 reference is not only taken completely out of context here, it is even misquoted. Here's the full verse and the surrounding text from Titus, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that was Titus 3 verses 4 through 7. So it gives you some context for verse 5. What saves us is the washing of the Holy Spirit, not the washing of the water. There's actually no water in those verses. Oh, Pastor Bruss, my respect for this guy is just, it's dropping I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but it's like we're crawling up under his house and the whole thing is eat up with mold. Mold and uh, and termites, isn't it? This is, uh, so he misquoted, he just misquoted the, the passage himself. He said that God saves us through the washing of the spirit. That's not what the passage says. It's the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And in Greek, what is that washing word? Dia lutru through the washing. So um, it's not baptism, right? That it doesn't use that. Uh, but what is baptism but a washing? To me, this he, he's, he's just refusing to see the Titus thing. But you don't even need, let's, let's, let's pretend that he's right about Titus, that it doesn't apply to baptism. Then what do we make of Mark uh, 16, 16? Well, I'm sure he's going to go through every one of these verses that were listed here in the Heidelberg Catechism. And just systematically go through each and every one of them and say something to the extent of it doesn't say what... What it, he wants it to say. <laughs> right, right. The Acts 22.16 reference is also partially quoted. Here's the full verse and the surrounding context. This is Acts 22, verses 12 through 16. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Unquote. Now who is being baptized here? Well, it's Paul. His former name was Saul. When Paul gives his testimony in scripture, does he refer to his baptism at the hand of Ananias or his confrontation with the risen Christ that preceded it? It's always the latter. When God speaks to Ananias to tell him to go baptize Paul, God makes it clear that he has already chosen Paul. Ananias himself says in Acts 9.17 these words, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias refers to Saul as brother before his baptism. Without belaboring the point, Paul had already had his conversion experience before baptism right on the Damascus Road. There is so much to quibble with here. When Paul comes to the um, synagogue in Antioch, uh, Pisidia, he addresses them, men, brethren, 
This is the first words out of his mouth. These are Jews unbelieving that Jesus is the Messiah. He still addresses them as brothers. So why does Ananias address Paul as a brother? Well, guess what? His name is Hananiah. He is a Jew. Paul is a Jew. That's why he calls him brother. So I don't think you can lay any weight on, on that business. Furthermore, the very words that are spoken here, that through Ananias, the Lord is going to give him the spirit. How is that going to happen? It's going to be in baptism. Where's the delivery mechanism? Exactly. This is so bizarre. It is bizarre. When Paul gave his testimony that he referred to seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, that because he doesn't speak of his baptism? In Acts 22, he does. And those are the verses that are quoted in the catechism, the, the Heidelberg Catechism. Right. That he says are taken out of context or are half quoted. Right, because the, the story's longer than that. Right, but see, here's the thing. Yes, there may have been times where Paul speaks of the resurrected Jesus more so than his baptism. But when he writes his epistles, what does he speak of? Baptism. Some of you were like this, but you were washed. He emphasizes their baptism. Very true. He doesn't say you need to have a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the risen Jesus. Oh, that's a really good point. Go yes, get baptized. Yeah, right, exactly. That's, that's, an, that's an awesome point. And, you know, I, I also want to go back to the, his encounter with the risen Jesus, right? What does Jesus say to Paul? He says, why are you persecuting me? This is a preaching of the law. So, yes, this is part of the conversion process, Paul being crushed by the law. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to find this stuff, right? Well, get baptized. And then on top of that, just to finish this off here and just to let him spin this yarn a little bit more, you know, Jesus first says to him, before asking him that question, why are you persecuting me, i.e. my church? He says, why are you kicking against the goads? That's exactly what Mike's doing. He's kicking against the goads. This is where the Lord is wanting to to lead you. This is what the Lord is wanting to do. And you, like a stubborn ass, are just kicking against the guy who's trying to, to drive you to the things that would be beneficial and good for you. Mike, why are you kicking against the goads? Indeed. Frankly, I know of no tradition that questions this. Perfectly willing to concede that Paul's conversion may well have fully taken place as he was there on the Damascus Road face-to-face -face with the risen Christ. Absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. But that doesn't mean that baptism doesn't do something. He's making an incorrect inference from that. But I thought I should mention it, since when Paul is baptized, we have the line about rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This isn't as difficult as it seems, or has been made. If the verse only said, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, it would be more problematic. But it includes calling on his, Jesus' name, which is how Paul describes his confession of faith and the confession of faith of others in Romans 10, verses 10 through 13. In this instance, the recipient of baptism knows the gospel already and makes profession of faith along with baptism. It isn't baptism that saves. It's the profession of faith in Christ. In Paul's case, it was the encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Infants cannot do this. As for those who can do this, the theological question is simple. In all of Scripture's explanations of the gospel, which is the indispensable element? faith in the saving work of Christ, or water baptism? The answer is pretty obvious. Yes, water baptism marked believers and was a rite that analogized an inner spiritual reality. But one could believe without it, and one isn't going to heaven without faith in Christ. The latter is the gospel. So here he is tying up all of these loose ends, so to speak, and the tapestry that he is coming up with, Pastor Bruss, is just... It's Frankensteinian, isn't it? 
I mean, there's so much to talk about here. He's, infants can't believe. Well, you know, how does he know, number one? Number two, how are they saved if they can't believe? He's begun with some premises here that are predicated upon a total false understanding of, of the power and majesty uh, of God working in this world. Number two, this whole business of faith to the exclusion of baptism. Faith is the only thing that's necessary, therefore baptism must not be necessary. Is it canard? If he goes to Romans chapter 10, where he's deriving this idea from that faith is the only thing that's necessary, then he would have to say that even the preaching of the gospel is unnecessary. So again, he's confusing delivery mechanism with result, uh, which is faith itself highly problematic. Using Acts 22.16 to somehow suggest that water baptism triggers forgiveness is theologically irresponsible and ignores a great deal of context and content in the New Testament. It's difficult to believe how wrong the Heidelberg Catechism gets this point, but it gets even murkier. Listen to question 74. Question. Are infants also to be baptized? Answer. Yes, for since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult. Unquote. Well, no kidding. Redemption is promised to the whole world. But how can a staunch Calvinist say that? That's a question for another podcast. And we all begin as children. If you're a five-point Calvinist, you must take this wording as only true of the elect. And that raises another problem. Why then do baptized people in Bible-believing, reformed, Calvinistic churches go astray? How can the elect apostatize? This is the sort of theological dilemma I referred to in the very first episode of the podcast. For Calvinists who practice infant baptism, either their doctrine of baptism needs rethinking, or their ideas about the perseverance of the elect need to be scrapped. You can't have it both ways. We totally agree with that. Correct. That's a good critique of the Calvinist position. But I don't think that that means that infants can't believe and that God doesn't intend infants to be baptized. Are they included in all nations or not in Matthew 28? They are. But here are some responses I've actually read or heard from Reformed pastors and writers. Well, if the infant's parents were believers, the baptized infant doesn't need to believe. The infant is part of the covenant relationship passed on by believing parents. Now think about that. So, if the faith of the parents is what really matters, then what's the point of describing baptism this way? More significantly, it doesn't answer the question. Sure, the infant gets baptized and is in the covenant. So, why did they apostatize again? It also doesn't address the situation where adults are baptized who didn't have believing parents, and then the baptized adult ends up forsaking the faith. Frankly, this is just a response that avoids the issue, unless you want to say that people who reject the faith still go to heaven because of what someone else believes. Spot on. I've also heard something like this. Well, baptism isn't supposed to work for the non-elect. So tell me, just how is that like circumcision again? How did circumcision work when it came to salvation? The answer is that it didn't work at all and wasn't intended to be a ticket to salvation. Israel as a nation was elect, and all Jewish males were to be circumcised. No one was more Jewish than other Jewish people, and yet most of the nation apostatized. Honestly, the logic here is just horrible. It seems to me we have some choices to make in response. Maybe baptism accomplishes nothing. Or, maybe the elect may not end up elect, meaning that election and salvation are two separate ideas. Now, any of those alternatives, and all of them, frankly, contradict the catechism's wording. Remember, 
The reason I'm going through this exercise is to show how confused the wording of the creeds are with respect to baptism. And the reason we are going through this exercise is to show how confused Mike is. Of the confusion. Right. They are confused because they fail to recognize the need to say only about baptism what one can coherently and biblically say about circumcision. Once you blow that assignment, your thinking is going to be hopelessly muddled and inconsistent. And unfortunately, it doesn't get any better with the Westminster Confession. That's the one we'll be taking a look at in the next episode of the Naked Bible Podcast. So you have anything to say to that? Lots, and I think it's already been said. He's, again, taking a bad argument uh, for infant baptism, the Calvinist one, skewering it, and therefore saying infant baptism ought to be ruled out entirely. And, you know, I just think that there's this entire missing category in his thinking about the delivery mechanism. He's not asking the question, okay, Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. How does that get to me in 2018? He has no way to explain that. And that's why he rejects baptism and the sacrament of the altar. And, frankly, he would have to reject the word as well. Well, I'm really interested in hearing him read from the Westminster Catechism uh, and seeing how he will look at yet again another document and say that it's fuzzy and needs rewriting. And he's going to find the same exact stuff. Correct. Welcome back to the Naked Bible Podcast. In the previous episode of the podcast, we looked at the Heidelberg Catechism and its confusing statements about salvation only by grace through faith and what it says baptism accomplishes. While the Catechism affirmed the former, its clarity in that regard was marred by careless statements about baptism that followed. In this episode, we'll look at the same sort of problematic language in parts of the Westminster Confession. Our procedure will be that I will give the chapter heading of the confession and then read its content and then offer some commentary. So let's get started. Chapter 11 of the Westminster Confession of Justification. Quote, Number one, Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God." Unquote. Now that's a very clear statement on the exclusive nature of justification apart from any human act. The next paragraph of the Confession begins by reinforcing the first, but then manages to snatch confusion from the jaws of clarity. Quote, number two, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the lone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Unquote. This is sort of curious wording. One wonders what is meant by other saving graces especially since baptism is viewed as a sacrament later in the confession. Let's move to the sixth point in this section of the confession. Quote, number six, The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Unquote. So, Justification worked the same way under the Old Testament as the New Testament. This is very important, and I'll come back to it in my criticisms of the baptism language. Let's go there now. Chapter 27 of the Westminster Confession 
of the sacraments. Quote, number one, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits, and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ, according to his word. Number two, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Unquote. Now think about what I just read. The names and effects of the one are attributed to another. So in some way, the grace that is signified by the sign is present in the sign. The thing signified, grace, is attributed to the sign. Why do we need language like this? Oh, Mikey, the reason that we need language like this is because this is what the Bible says. In my judgment, it seems there is some felt need or mystical superstition that something spiritual and unseen is happening when the sacrament is given or performed. That's correct. That's only your view. <laughs> There's no felt need here. This no, is, but something is, is happening exactly that is so. unseen. Well, this is what the biblical record teaches us, that something is happening. And to draw that out through the use of these catechisms and confessions, it is a good and right thing. You know, it reminds me of the guy who was in uh, the adult catechesis. He said, Pastor, I had no idea how wonderful my baptism actually was. He was a man who was baptized as a baby, but but I don't know, listening to guys like Mike here, he's taught that his baptism when he was a baby really didn't mean much, and so he had to be baptized again now that he's made a decision for Jesus. And he walked out of there, out of that class, thinking, this is an amazing God who gives a sinner like me as a baby, all of these wonderful graces. Really? Do we have a single Old Testament verse that says something mystical was happening with circumcision? We just read that grace and salvation work the same way in both Testaments. Was grace somehow imparted or triggered at circumcision? Too bad for the Israelite girls and women. There's simply nothing like this in the text of either the Old or the New Testament. It's contrived and inserted into these narratives because of this odd mystical view. The mystical connection does not derive from the text. We're never told that the members of Abraham's household who were circumcised believed anything at all. And yet in what follows, this household circumcision will be used to justify a mystical view of baptism. The same thing that animates his discussion on baptism animates his discussion on uh, the covenant of circumcision. In the covenant of circumcision, what God does is he bestows upon everybody who is circumcised the promises that were given to Abraham. In fact, the promise and the capital S seed that was given to Abraham, that they had a savior who was going to be born uh, as a Jew. Now, did, did, did every single Hebrew believe this? No, some of them fell away. But it doesn't mean that God didn't bestow this upon them and lay it in their lap. I don't even think that we can deal with each and every one of these things that he's saying because it's so cattywampus from, from the get-go. Does that make sense? Like, how do you even stop and, and deal with it? It is so—it's like the, the structure is so— messed up that you can't even deal with these two by fours you got to take everything down because the foundation is is cracked and off does that make sense totally that's, makes that's, sense and it's the it's his foundational premise isn't it that baptism and the sacrament of the altar must be some sort of work therefore they couldn't possibly confer grace like the scriptures claim 
Let's move to point number four in this section of the Westminster Confession. Quote, number four. There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. Unquote. Now, I wonder why it would matter who performs baptism. Is there a New Testament verse that says only elders or bishops should baptize or serve communion? This sounds very mediatorial to me, as though grace is being dispensed through a priestly figure. But let's keep going. On to chapter 28 on baptism. Quote, number one. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world, unquote. Now in this section, we learn that baptism is a sign and seal of certain things to the recipient. And these things are the covenant of grace, regeneration, remission of sins, and quote unquote, giving up to God to walk in newness of life. Now here's my question. Where's the verse in the Bible that has circumcision being a sign of regeneration and remission of sins. Without that biblical evidence, what the confession says is in error, at least if we want to, again, be consistent in what we say about baptism, we can also be saying about circumcision. So here he's taken one touch point in the scriptures, in the New Testament scriptures, where Paul analogizes baptism by pointing to the covenant of circumcision. And what he's saying is that if the exact verbiage applied to baptism is not applied also to the covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament, then even what the New Testament says about baptism being a washing of regeneration, a, a remitting of sins, um, all of this other stuff, then that must be false. This is... This is crazy talk. Well, and on top of that, it's like a violation of like hermeneutics 101. There are shadows that point to the reality. Right. This would be like saying that David had to be perfect because he is the protogenitor of Jesus. Right. So you can't look at the shadow or the type and think that these two are corollary. One points to the other, and the other is going to be greater than the former. But he's saying that, no, it's got to be equal. How many other things, like you just pointed out with David, how many other things do we say they, they have to be just exactly the same? No, you'd have to say that then that the, that the church must have its own land, right, uh, its own country, You'd have to say that David had to be perfect like Christ. I mean, th th this is just craziness. I can't believe that they pay this guy to work at Logo Software. He's a smart guy, Pastor Ross. But he's not. He, he, he can't read. Well, and on top of that, this is the thing that gets me. I'm assuming he attends a Reformed church, and he knows what specific documents that church then holds to whether it's Westminster or Heidelberg, you know, whatever the case may be. Anytime the pastor starts speaking on these issues, and God forbid that pastor actually pull out the documents and read them and saying, this is what we affirm and this is what makes us such and such a church, man, he, he's got his arms crossed and he's shaking his head. Circumcision was, of course, the sign of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, but not a so-called covenant of grace, which is actually never mentioned in the Bible. So this equation fails here as well. Let's move on to point number four in this section of the confession. Quote, number four. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, 
but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized." Unquote. This language is very interesting since it distinguishes those who profess faith from infants who receive baptism. I'd agree. Infants are not believing anything when they get baptized. We're all grateful that an infant is able to recognize where mommy's milk comes from, much less put the burden of understanding the gospel on them. But the language of this point links infant baptism to election. And so we're back to the problem of non-perseverance for many who are baptized, even of believing parents. If there is this link between the elect and the baptized, how does one account for baptized people who turn away from the faith? If listeners know their Calvinism or their Reformed theology, they'll see a conundrum now. Either the Reformed doctrine of infant baptism is incorrect, or the doctrine of perseverance of the elect is incorrect. This is a, a correct critique of Calvinist theology. The problem is that in Calvinism, there's like a secret, invisible, parallel working of the Spirit when the sacraments are administered and the Word is preached. In Lutheran theology and biblical theology, the Spirit actually works in and through the Word and the sacraments. It's a mystery why some don't believe it. Well, we know why some don't believe it. They don't believe it because of their hardness of heart. It's a mystery why some actually do believe it. That's in God's hands. We don't understand that. Uh, but Calvinists have come up with this idea of the perseverance of the faithful. And so what they would, th this is how a Calvinist would respond to what he said. They would say, yeah, uh, God did all these things in this outward sign, but obviously the spirit working on the secondary level chose not to do his job because this person had not been predestined and elected. We reject that, but that's the Calvinist response to what Heiser is saying. But now the confession throws us a monkey wrench, or better, turns back on its own wording. Quote, number five. Although it be a great sin to condemn or neglect his ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Unquote. This is interesting. The confession appears to notice the problem I've been focusing on, and it denies that all who are baptized will be believers. But why then use the language about baptism that suggests such a link? Why say anything like that at all? Why not separate the two more clearly and say something to the effect that circumcision also failed to accomplish anything regarding salvation? In other words, why not be clear? Unfortunately, the confession at this point doubles back on itself again by linking baptism to the dispensing of grace in the next section. Quote, number six, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto them, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. Unquote. Now, this is quite clear. Grace is conferred at baptism to the recipient. So where does this grace come from? Where do we see the Bible affirm this about circumcision? And how, with this grace dispensed and received, is a baptized person ever able to forsake the faith? One can't defend the confession here by saying, well, it's not saving grace that is involved, since the point ends by confirming the recipient's election. That's what is involved. There's just simply no clarity here when you take all of these sections together. Hopefully, what's clear by now is the need to be careful when comparing baptism and circumcision so that baptism does not impinge upon the biblical teaching about salvation by grace 
through a person's faith. It really isn't that difficult. The reason the creeds are so muddled in their thinking in this regard is a failure to take note of what can and cannot be said about circumcision and then move from that to baptism. That will be our task in the next episode of the Naked Bible Podcast. I see a lot of throwing up of your hands over there, Pastor Bruss, a lot of shaking of your head. What can and cannot be said of the shadow determines the extent of what can and cannot be said of the fulfillment. Boy, is that difficult. And if he's going to try to live with that for the rest of Scripture, he's going to end up with nothing, nothing at all. Well, I am proud of our listeners for making their way all the way through these podcasts with us. And uh, I don't know, maybe we'll take a break from old Mikey here uh, for a little while. I know what's amazing is, is that on his Naked Bible podcast, he's going to keep on uh, going with this whole issue of baptism, which, you know, I applaud him for. This is how I found him to begin with, is that he's starting his podcast, and um, right out of the chute, he's... um, He's tackling this issue of, of baptism, even though, as we have clearly already pointed out, uh, he is going about it uh, the wrong way. And it's going to lead—I mean, what does this lead to? Well, it leads to an uprooted Christianity. Where, where, do, you, where do you find God? Ultimately, he's just going to leave you with the faith in your own heart, and so then you end up with faith and faith, and that's a, that's a no-go. Um, uh, I, I don't think we actually need to listen to the rest of what he's going to say about covenant of circumcision and how it limits the fulfillment in baptism. Uh, we've already said clearly the shadow is always going to be less than the than its fulfillment. And so if you bear that in mind and want to listen to the rest of what Mike has to say, you can find it on the nakedbiblepodcast.com. There you go. But we don't encourage you to do that. <laughs> Well, Pastor Bruss, thank you very much. It's been great. Likewise. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.